We're now going to read God's word, so Leviticus 9. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burnt offering, both without defect, and present them before the Lord. Then say to the Israelites, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old and without defect, for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord, together with a grain offering mixed with olive oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. They took the things Moses commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the entire assembly came near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Moses said to Aaron, Come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering, and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people. Sacrifice the offerings that is for the people, and make atonement for them, as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron came to the altar and slaughtered the calf as a sin offering for himself. His sons brought the blood to him, and he dipped his finger into the blood and put it on the horns of the altar. The rest of the blood he poured out at the base of the altar. On the altar, he burnt the fat, the kidneys, and the long lobe of the liver for the sin offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. The flesh and the hide he burnt outside the camp. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering. His sons handed him the blood, and he splashed it against the sides of the altar. They handed him the burnt offering piece by piece, including the head, and he burnt them on the altar. He washed the internal organs and the legs and burnt them on top of the burnt offerings on the altar. Aaron then brought the offerings that was for the people. He took the goat for the people's sin, offering and slaughtering it, and offered it for the sin offering, as he did with the first one. He brought the burnt offering and he offered it in the the prescribed way. He also brought the grain offering, took a handful of it and burnt it on the altar, in addition to the morning's burning, burnt offering. He slaughtered the ox and the ram as the fellowship offering for the people. His son handed him the blood, and they splashed it against the sides of the altar. But the fat portion of the ox and the ram, the fat tail, the layers of fat, the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, these they laid on the breasts, and then Aaron burnt the fat of the, on the altar. Aaron waved the breast and the right thigh before the Lord as a wave offering, as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted his hand towards the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people." Fire came down from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. 
Good morning. Good to see you all. Um, before I begin, I just want to say um, thank you um, to all of you. Thanks for the um, invite. Uh, Matt, there he is. Thank you. Flowers. You shouldn't have. <laughs> Thanks for the um, invite. One of the greatest encouragements um, to a preacher when they come is that people want to talk to them about the things of the Lord. So thank you to so many of you who have engaged me in conversation about Leviticus, but just about other things and encouraging one another in the faith. So thank you for that. It's been a really great, friendly... I know, yes. Anyone else? Anyone else? Are we settled? Yeah. Good. We're all settled. So thank you for that. Uh, I remember uh, preaching uh, a series on the church and lots of things about, oh, the church is like this and the church is like that. And often people say the church is like uh, a family, and that's wrong, isn't it? The church is family, okay, is. It's not a kind of uh, metaphor or um, trying to give some illustration to work off. And that's what, very much what I've experienced um, um, this weekend with you guys, family. Uh, I might be that kind of northern uncle that you only hope to see at weddings and funerals. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's definitely been like family, so thank you uh, for that. Let's pray together as we come to this final um, portion. Lord, we pray and we ask that, uh, that the words uh, of my mouth and the meditation, Lord, of all our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our God. Amen. That was um, an uplifting um, time. The Lord really drew near to us. Maybe you'll say that about this uh, weekend. Um, the worship was awesome today. Maybe that's something you uh, say when you're leaving Christchurch at Mayfair. God was moving powerfully. I wonder if you were to ask yourself the question, what was the most memorable uh, and engaging worship experience you've had? What would um, come um, to mind? Um, I remember um, vividly a time when Isaiah 53 uh, was preached, um, and then it was followed by the hymn, Yes, Finish the Messiah um, Died. And I remember that the Lord flooded my heart with gratitude in an overwhelming way. I've never forgotten it. It was a, a life-changing um, experience. I'll never forget that day. On another occasion, um, I was sitting in a pew, um, hearing the words of the Lord's Supper. And I remember my head just going lower and lower as the word was said. Convicted that there was no way that this unforgiveness that I was carrying in my heart um, could remain there if I was going to take the bread and the wine into my hands. Uh, and, it, and it struck me. Um, I really um, knew the Lord convicting me. And I'll never forget a, a time, and I can't remember if you were there for this, Phil. Um, I preached on judgment um, from 1 Peter on a Christian summer um, camp. And silence fell um, on the room. The weightiness of God's um, judgment uh, and people's eternal lost state fell upon me. Um, I was weeping. Um, leaders in the room started weeping. Members started um, weeping. There was a real weightiness um, to the meeting. Um, and we cancelled the um, evening 
uh, program um, the evening ends afterwards so that the leaders could chat uh, to the members because we thought following that by sticking your head in a melon or drinking Coca-Cola through someone else's sock uh, probably <laughs> wasn't the most appropriate thing um, to do. So let me ask you the question again. What is the most engaging worship experience um, that you've had? Well, in some respects, I hesitate to even ask it or use the word engaging because sometimes I think when we think about that, we attach too much activity, uh, too much um, to the activity of people. That was um, exciting, exhilarating music from the band, or uh, he was a really engaging um, preacher. But when I use that word engaging, I'm not referring to man's ability, which um, varies um, enormously, but to God's activity, which is absolutely vital for when we come together um, to meet um, as God's um, people. I'm talking about that reality and expectation that God will move as the musicians use their gifts, their God-given gifts, as we sing his praises, as the word of God is read and proclaimed, as we cry out um, in prayer to the Lord. So when you arrive at CCM on Sundays, do you expect anything out of the ordinary to take place? I'm not talking about Matt. <laughs> the things. Somebody said yesterday, I can see why you and Matt are friends. The, the, the person will know. They say, you're both a little quirky, aren't you? <laughs> a little quirky. <laughs> Do you expect anything out of the ordinary to take place? Are you expecting to meet with God and God to meet with you? Are you anticipating that God will come to you in a, in a powerful, transforming um, way. Because um, Leviticus 9 lives in the expectation that the Lord uh, will appear. Verse 4, for the, today the Lord will appear to you. Then we read that they were to obey the instructions that, so that, verse 6, the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And then verse 23, we read that the glory of the Lord did, in fact, appear to the people. God engaged um, his people uh, as they worshipped, and they were overwhelmed. Now, again, as we've always said, we think about Leviticus 9. We know the um, foundation and the ultimate fulfillment is in Christ. Um, God has drawn um, near and appeared to his people in his son. That's what um, Marmalade was hinting at last, sorry, Jam was hinting at last um, <laughs> night. It's hard with condiments, isn't it, to always get the, um, the right one. But... He was talking about that, isn't it? The Lord coming near in um, the Son, appearing to us. Christ's sacrifice has made it possible for us to experience and enjoy the presence of God so that as Phil and rightly said as he opened, so that we're always now through um, Christ in the presence and living in the presence of our God, enjoying that through Christ's work as our priest and sacrifice. Sin has been atoned for. And because of Christ... The fire of the Holy Spirit has come forth um, from heaven, from God, to rest upon the people and the altar of our hearts. That's the ultimate fulfillment of Leviticus 9. That's how we live. That's the day that we live in as Christian people. And that said, Leviticus 9 still has much to teach us about worship and how we prepare 
uh, for worship, some stakes that we can put um, in the ground. So we're going to focus on um, three. Here's the first one. Preparation is important. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm on edge at the minute. I don't know what's going to happen. You, you don't want to have a go as well, do you, Matt? No, it's all right. Preparation is important for the engagement of God's um, presence. So in the case of um, worship described in, in Leviticus 9, the preparation has been extensive. Just think about it, the point that we've got to here. Uh, the people have erected the tabernacle according to God's specification. The people have set apart um, Aaron and his sons as priests, just as God commanded. Chapter 8 um, describes the consecration ceremony um, for the priests that lasted, get this, so if you're going to get bored during the coronation of King Charles, seven days. And Leviticus 9 begins, doesn't it, in verse 1, where it says the eighth day. The eighth day because there's already been seven days of preparation. That's just for Aaron and his sons, not including everything else that took place beforehand. And repeatedly within Leviticus, you get this strong um, sense that you're not to thoughtlessly stumble into God's presence, nor are you to arrogantly stride into God's presence. There's various preparations that has to take place. So let me ask you this question. How do you prepare for worship, particularly thinking about the corporate gathering on Sunday? Let me give you this scenario. Maybe this is how you prepare. Uh, you stay up late Saturday night uh, watching films, because after all, it's the weekend and you've gone to bed early uh, most nights uh, for work. And you wake up Sunday morning and you're slightly anxious about work, and so you check some emails, um, or maybe you think, I need to get that laundry in because the children um, need their um, school uniform. And then we have a little bit of a grumble about somebody who we're going to see um, at church who slightly put us out for some reason. And then on the way to church, we argue why we're once again late uh, because of everything that we've um, done. Then, of course, we turn up at church and we all um, smile as if everything is all right. And then we sit in the service and we drift off during the sermon because we're tired from a late night. We zone out during the songs and can't concentrate on the words that we're singing because we're thinking about that email and um, all the washing cycle. Will it finish? Can I even afford to put it in the tumble dryer? <laughs> and we're being distracted during the prayers, and because I'm still thinking about the argument, and the person in church sitting quite close to me who's put me out of sorts. And then we leave, and on the way out, we turn and to someone we've come with who we trust, and we say, I didn't get much out of church today. <laughs> and not entertaining that maybe we didn't put much in <laughs> to getting something out of um, church today. Uh, I didn't get much out of church rather than saying, well, how much did I enter into what was happening um, this morning? It, sometimes it appears to me that uh, I confess for myself and my family that we put more preparation in going on um, uh, an evening out as a family than we do on turning up to church. I wonder if that's the case for you. But full engagement in public worship is so often preceded by engaging with the Lord in private 
and worship. So we, we make ourselves ready to worship with others when we're worshiping alone. As I was preparing at Leviticus 9, I went to visit um, a couple that in their 80s um, from Christchurch, um, Newland. Uh, and as I entered into their um, home, um, I arrived and there was Christian worship music playing um, in the background. Um, on the tables beside um, both of their seats, their armchairs, um, Bibles were open, devotional um, books uh, were there. And I always have this thing that I want to pray with people before um, I leave. Um, but there was no chance that I was not going to because before we even had it, shall we pray before I put the kettle on? <laughs> I was naturally drawn into worshipping with these fellow uh, believers because different creatures um, flourish in different environments, don't they? Fish in the sea, birds in the air, monkeys in um, trees, that, that kind of thing. And we as believers flourish in the environment of worship. And private worship and living conscious of God throughout our lives prepares us and makes us ready for public worship. God has used private worship times in my life in a wonderful way. A wonderful way. However, when I worship with the people of God, it's like the volume is turned up in your spirit, isn't it? For example, I don't know if you like sport. I'm not like hugely a fan of any particular sport, but... If you've got your favorite team or player and you're watching on the TV, you engage, and that's one level of engagement. If you've invited around several friends and you're doing it together, that takes the engagement to a different level. But if you manage to go to the stadium and the stadium's absolutely packed and you're there with all your fellow fans, well, that takes the engagement to another level altogether, doesn't it? And here we are as a, the people of God, of course, and we love and private worship. But when we get together as the people of God, it's a wonderful thing. So brothers and sisters, if it's not your habit, can I encourage you to spend time at least praying before the Sunday worship, asking God to prepare you, asking him to prepare everyone else, asking him to bless those who are leading, preaching, um, um, you know, the musicians, those in the Sunday um, clubs, that God will meet with us in a powerful way. Could you even arrive in good time um, so you can prepare your heart and mind and so that you're not distracting other people who are seeking to prepare their hearts and minds for this wonderful thing that's about to take place as the people of God uh, worship the living God together? Join the leaders in asking the Lord to speak to us during the time of worship. Join the leaders in asking them that we'll be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You see, we should ask God to help us exalt him in worship and, and protect us from ourselves. You know, the, the greatest hindrance uh, to worship and the engagement of God is our own hearts, isn't it? You see, if we're going to engage God in a transforming way, we need to guard against our eyes being on other things. What I've called the self-centered eye. What are people thinking about me? What will they think of me if I put, raise my hands in the song? What will they think of me if I remain seated after the confession because I'd rather stay there for a moment than sing the next song 
and because the Lord is dealing with me in that moment. What are they thinking about me? Are they judging me because of what the kids are doing, because they're so fidgety, or they're not, they don't seem to be engaging with the song, but are more interested in pushing the cars under the... Our eye isn't to be fixed on ourselves or others, what people are thinking about us. That's not what we're there for, is it? But we need to guard against a critical eye. Oh, what was a preacher going on about this morning? What was... Simon doing on his guitar, I think he still thought he was at the Westlife concert. <laughs> Phil, Phil. He's <laughs> your younger brother as well, isn't he? How embarrassing. I'm sorry, Phil. I, I do love you as much as, as much as your adorable brother. You see, we, if we have this critical eye... It takes us off who we have come um, to worship. And we need to be guarded against a wandering eye. Oh, the curtains are not central today. I don't think they've put out much cheese and grapes for after the service. (laughs) We can engage with everything around us, but fail to engage with the one we've come to meet. I'm just going to do a little thing for you. One of those, um, we do it in our family um, traveling in cars, we have this thing where you have to sing a line from a song that includes a certain word. We say the word. Right? If your eye is not to be a self-centered eye, focus on yourself. It's not to be a critical eye, uh, focused on pulling other people down. It's not to be a wandering eye, looking at everything around you. What lines do we have from Christian songs that get us to that talk about lifting our eyes, minds, or whatever to God? Come on, let's put some out. You don't have to sing it. You can say them. Turn your eyes up. Turn your eyes up on, come on, if, we do, if that's not the first one, we're lost. Sorry? Be thou my vision. Oh, would I look and see him there? Excellent. Come on. When I survey the wondrous cross, yes. See him in Jerusalem. Wow, you're very good. Behold our God. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> you're very good. Anything else? Any others? We've sang one already. I cast my mind to Calvary. So many, aren't there? Uh, to gaze upon your lovely face and rest in the Father's embrace. Do you, who remembers that one? That's quite an old one, I think. Not a critical eye, not a self-centered eye, not a wandering eye, but turn my eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we seek God in prayer before worship, it's amazing the difference it makes. So preparation. Why not get there at 10.20? 5.50. Give it a go. Get there at 10.20, get there at 5.50. Prepare yourself. Get ready when you might think, Scott, I've got a family. I'm barely prepared for life. Never mind. (laughs) Never mind preparing uh, at 10.20, but just give it a go. Just try it. Aim for 10.20, aim for 5.50. And then maybe just get, if you have got a family, get the family around and say, look, just just one minute prayer for the service. We're here with God's people to meet with God, to hear from God's word, to sing his praises. Here's the second thing. Submission is important for um, the engagement of God's presence. So the worship described 
uh, in Levit Leviticus 9 was according to what God commanded. And the basis of enjoying the presence of God was submission to his word, his command. So verse 6, verse 7, verse 10, verse 16, you get these repeated phrases, as the Lord commanded or in the prescribed way. Now, this is a big issue, isn't it? Preparing for worship, engaging God in worship, has got to be in submission to his word, his command in the prescribed way. Now, there's too much talk about people worshiping God and engaging God outside of the word of God without submission to the word of God. And rather than the prescribed way, in their own way. And they still expect the fire of God's presence to fall. Well, we haven't got time to go to it, but read Leviticus 10. <laughs> You'll find out when people want to offer worship in an unprescribed way, Aaron's two sons, the fire does still come out. But it doesn't fall on the altar. It falls upon them um, in judgment. The act of worship itself is, is submission to God's word. Uh, throughout the Bible, God's people um, worship him. The patriarchs worshipped him. The Israelites left Egypt, um, went into the wilderness and worshipped. God told his people to build the tabernacle uh, and lay to the temple to worship him. The prophets called people back to pure and right worship of God instead of empty ritual. The psalmists continually exhort the people to worship God. And in Psalm 96, it says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Worship becomes the pattern of the New Testament church. Jesus himself said, didn't he, that the Father is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus taught us to pray um, that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in heaven, God's people offer continual worship to him. So that in Revelation 4, it says, In heaven, day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And the author of Hebrews, who we've gone to so often, writes in chapter 10, And let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Now, as believers, when you walk into the building at Christchurch Mayfair, um, you are saying and you're declaring that your life is dedicated to the Lord. You are saying, I'm here as a worshiper. <laughs> to worship the true and living God. And that, in and of itself, the act of worship is obedience to God's command to gather. But the way that we worship should be in submission to God's word. Leviticus 9 describes God's people worshiping in the way that God had told them. It's at the tabernacle that he designed with the sacrifices he's commanded, led by the priests that he's chosen. And we too, as a New Testament church, are to worship in the way that God tells us to worship in his word. First and foremost, we know that that is through the Son and by the Spirit. But then we get other things that 
We're told in his word to sing his praises, and so we sing his praises. We're told in his word to bow before him, and so we confess our sins to him. We're told in his word to pray. We're told in his word to express love for the brothers and sisters in Christ, and so we do that. His word tells us that the word should be read and preached in our gatherings, and so we do that. And so many, uh, I don't think it's as common now because we've divided so much and we're very clear about our dividing lines, but uh, when I was a younger Christian, there was all these worship wars and church were dividing about which hymn book you were using. Was it uh, Songs of Fellowship 1 and 2? Or were you ancient ancient and modern uh, hymns? Um, All dividing over which hymn book. And God says, no, you do worship by the book, absolutely. But this book, this is the book that defines, dictates, and directs all your worship. Um, It's here. See, worship is mere, more than mere attendance at a building at 10.30, 6 o'clock, or 10.20, See, worship isn't watching the people up front do their stuff. Worship is submission to God's word, demonstrated in heartfelt praise to him, fervent prayer to him, honest confession before him, expressions of love to those who belong to him, and joyful obedience to him. We must engage in every part um, of the worship. It's not enough to suddenly hear those who are leading the intercession say amen, and you say amen, and you think, bang on. (laughs) Count me in on that one, God. (laughs) Don't know what they said, because I slightly zoned out, but I amen it, (laughs) and so it's mine. No, we've got to engage in every part of it. Even in the notices, just think about this. I had a revolution about notices because I was always apologizing for notices. Oh, I'm sorry that there's so long. I'm sorry that there's so, um, so many. But here's the thing. What are the notices for? Why are we giving notices? Well, I would say this now. If someone gets up the front and says, um, Christian camps are happening, and you think, okay, well, I haven't got any kids. Uh, who gives them monkeys? No, ought we not to say, look, this is part of the worship of our church. How can I be praying for those Christian camps? Um, Is there even a way that I could be serving on those um, Christian camps? Um, Are they going to even talk about people might need financial help to send some of their children on that Christian camp? Maybe I can contribute like that. And it's part of your, you can start thinking, how can I worship the living God through this notice that's being given? Engage with the notice because you'll be able to do something in response to it. Maybe there's an evangelistic event and you don't think, well, I wouldn't be able to get any of my friends to that. Um, But I know that person is really interested in this, and maybe their friends, maybe I could chat to them about how I could pray for them as they try to engage their friends. In every part of the service, we're looking to participate by proactively engaging in what is going on. Here's the third focus. Celebration is an important part in the engagement of God's presence. So verses 23 and 24 say, When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. 
And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Um, Sometimes um, Christians vigorously um, debate whether worship should be more celebrative or more meditative, uh, more expressive or more subdued. But why can't it be both? Um, Both were expressed in Leviticus and and by the people in Leviticus 9. Some people who like to sing passionately, uh, they feel very uncomfortable with silent pauses. Some people like set prayers, but they're dismissive of spontaneity. But here's the question. Is worship only what feels comfortable to me? Most of us can raise our uh, a shout of excitement, maybe even lift our arms if our team or player wins the match in joyful um, jubilation. Even if you're not a, yeah, you might do a little, come on, yeah? <laughs> Most of us can close our mouths and bow our heads when the coffin passes and mark of silent respect. If you're one of those people who are going, hallelujah, praise the Lord as the coffin passes, you, know, you might want to talk to Matt or Phil and <laughs> about more appropriate behavior at appropriate times. You see, we all have a a range of um, emotions and affections and responses to different things at different times in our lives. You see, worship doesn't respond and isn't a response to my character. It's a response to God's character. Worship is not an expression of my mood, but an experience of God's might and majesty. I'm not engaging myself, am I? I'm engaging with the living God. So let me let, me let you into a little secret. Uh, the services at uh, Christchurch Mayfair take a lot of planning. The songs and hymns are chosen with specific purpose in mind. I've been so encouraged. Uh, we've, we've not uh, had a discussion between me and those who've been leading the sessions, but I've I really just think it's been wonderful how the different sessions have held um, together and pulled together. It's been fantastic. The musicians practice and organize the arrangements to enhance our praise. Uh, The leaders decide on what to say in order to lift our eyes to Jesus to help us engage with each part of the service. Do you know when the people are saying things between um, the songs or as they move to confession or into the um, the prayers, it's not just spiritual padding. (laughs) It's, it's part of our prayers. It's not filling the gaps. It's part of forming growth for us. I think too many people think it's like a spiritual commercial. We know what's going to be in there. We're going to have some praise songs. We're going to have a reading, a sermon, some intercessions. Uh, and then Matt, Phil, or Ben, they're going to do a bit of, you know, a little commercial break. <laughs> spiritual commercial break. So it doesn't matter if you miss out on it. Could be talking about anything. I'm not trying to get you by an energy drink. Okay? And so, and so we zone out. But the people who are leading, the people who are putting things together, every part of the service is seeking to lift our eyes to Jesus, to stop us being self-centered, stop having a critical eye or a wandering eye. And they're saying those things that Christ might be exalted, that our hearts and minds might be set on things above. For Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, the preacher labors so that 
The mind can be instructed, the heart can be captivated by the truth. Planning and preparing for God's presence amongst us. But no one can plan and prepare for what God will do as the Spirit blows and moves where he chooses. Can you imagine uh, Moses and Aaron as they came out and they've done all this planning and preparation and they're suddenly standing there and then, boom, fire comes out. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Did you expect that? No, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Did he tell you about that, Moses? No. <laughs> we had no dialogue about fire coming out <laughs> and consuming uh, the sacrifice on the altar. And in the final song, None of us were planning that God would visit Carl with salvation. And during the prayer time that he was going to convict Lucy about bitterness in her heart, or in the sermon that he was going to comfort uh, Harry and strengthen his faith in his sadness and mourning, or that during the Lord's Supper he was going to overwhelm Emma with a real sense of joy, we do all our planning, we do all our praying, we do all our submitting, and we celebrate because we know the Lord is going to move. And the Lord is going to work. And the Lord is going to do something among um, his people for um, his glory. You see, a lot of people today think that a great time of worship is defined by great music. Great music's brilliant, isn't it? God commands us to use music to praise him. But in the worship described in Leviticus 9, there's no instruments, but God was present. And the people were overwhelmed. A lot of people think that a great time of worship is defined by a powerful message by the preacher. But engaging and enjoying God in worship is about God's presence, not man's presence. Can our mighty God, mighty majestic God, be constrained because Ben hits a few bum notes on the bass? No. Can our powerful and purposeful God be restrained because Matt seems a bit muddled in his message this morning? No. Does it exalt God when we want to attend worship more because of who's in the pulpit and on the piano and engage with him? No. Who are you turning up for? Notice I didn't even say, what are you turning up for? Who are you turning up for? It's a fundamental question when we think about preparing for worship. You see, we don't turn up to experience what people are going to do, but to engage with the Lord and see what He does amongst us. So as I finish, our worship on Sunday is vitally important in the experience of God's presence. It's hard as Christians to live by faith in a God that we can't physically see, whose voice and we cannot hear whose touch we cannot feel. But in worship, as the people of God gather together, it's like the veil is drawn back and faith sees and hears and feels the Lord in a very real way. That's my experience, and I trust that that's your experience. That's why I love to gather with God's people morning and evening. I remember at Christchurch, Newland, um, I gave, um, I preached, and I offered this encouragement and challenge that if people only come in the morning, to come back out in the evening. And I, I said, I, I love um, doing that. 
And on the way out, two um, guys came up to me and they said, oh, Scott, we always find it a bit rich when preachers say that you should come to bus services because you get paid to do it. You're, you're paid um, to be there. So after I explained to him from Leviticus um, that the poke in the eye I'd just given him wasn't an unintentional sin, and that it was actually deliberate, not without negligence and ignorance, but I planned it, and it had forethought. I then told him that as a young uh, man, and I, when I used to walk from uh, my village to the next village to go to church, I did so in the morning and the evening, uh, because I could think of being in no better place than being with God's people worshipping um, the living, and God should love to meet with the Lord and enjoying them in a deeper and fuller way. And what a witness it is to others, either unbelievers, new Christians, or mature Christians who are just, um, fade, just fading a little bit and feeling weary. But what a witness to them such worship must be, looking over a congregation who obviously know that they're in the presence of God, and they're acting like it, and they're singing like it, and they're speaking like it, and they're praying like it. And they will say, no one could behave in this way as these people do were they not actually in the presence of the living God. Well, that's my testimony of being with you guys this weekend. What an encouragement it's been to me. Preparation for worship, submission in worship, celebration at worship, all for the engagement and enjoyment of our Savior and Lord, let's pray. Lord, the, um, the privilege, um, the beauty of what you have done for us in calling us to worship you and to enjoy your presence, the presence of the true and living God, the creator of all things. Lord, our hearts are filled with gladness and joy at such rich blessings that have come from your hand. And there is no better thing in all the universe than to know you, to enjoy you, to gather with your people and to set our hearts and minds upon you, to lift our eyes from ourselves and the things around us and the things of this earth, to put them upon you and to fix our eyes upon Jesus. Lord, thank you for calling us to be your people. Thank you for making atonement for our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending your spirit to dwell in our hearts so that we might always know your presence. Fill us with joy, thanksgiving, and praise to you, our great God. Amen.